0: If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30 and going through verse 50. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30 and going through verse 50. Continuing our series through the book of Mark, where we'll be in really uh, pretty much until Christmas. Uh, It's a larger chunk today than we usually do, but I think it's cohesive and tells one larger story and making uh, a few main points. Mark chapter 9 John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid have been running from a posse for uh, a few days it has been out to get them. They're stuck alone at the top of a high cliff because the way was too steep for their horses now it's the end of the line. They check their guns to see how many shots they have, knowing that they don't have enough. Then Butch looks over the edge to the rapids below and suggests that they jump. That's the only way that they know that the lawmen won't follow them, because no one would jump like that if they didn't have to. He says that he'll jump first. Sundance barks, no. Okay, well, then you go first. No. Sundance doesn't want to do it. No, he's adamant. He'll take his chances with the guns. He wants to fight. What's the matter with you, Butch asks. I can't swim, Sundance yells back. There's a short pause. Then Butch Cassidy can't help it. He laughs. (laughs) What are you, crazy? The fall will probably kill you. Sundance was worried about the water at the bottom, and not the fall he was going to have to take to get there. should have been worried about what happens when you hit the water or what happens when you hit the rocks beneath the water. He was worried about the fall. His priorities were out of order. Worry about the fall and then you can worry about the swimming. You had to get through the fall to get to the swimming. His priorities were out of whack. Misplaced priorities are so easy for us to fall into. We likely do it every day. From our text today, we can see that Jesus points out four misplaced priorities of a disciple. Four ways that a disciple's priorities can easily get out of whack. First of all, a disciple can sometimes value comfort over community. Look at uh, verse 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Jesus has just told them for the second time in the book of Mark that he's going to die and come back to life. But notice the disciples' response. They didn't know what he was talking about, and they were too afraid to ask for clarification. If a crazy man were to walk up on the street and say he's going to die soon and come back to life, you probably wouldn't understand him. You might also be afraid to ask him for more clarifications. You don't know what he means. That's okay. He can just keep walking. So you wouldn't do anything about it. But Jesus isn't a random crazy man on the street. He's their teacher. He's their rabbi. They've followed him closely for years now. They've all heard him acknowledge that he's the Messiah, he's the Christ. Three of them even saw him glorified up on a mountain, revealed as who he actually is in their presence. When he says, not just one time, but twice, that he's going to die and come back to life, you think that they would just believe him, that they'd understand when he says that, that's probably what he means. Not only that, you think if they didn't understand that they would just ask, He's not scary. He's been with them this whole time. They've seen him deal gently and tenderly with the sick, the poor, the afflicted. He's not known for flying off the handle. He's not known for causing fear in the hearts of people who are asking an honest question to him. But they don't understand, and they're too afraid to ask. They were choosing their own comfort, the chance to avoid their own fear. Over the community and understanding that they might have had with Jesus if they would have just asked him for clarification. If they would have just said, what do you mean? Tell us more. They should have chosen that community. Think about what they missed out on here. He could have further explained to them the coming suffering that he was going to endure. He could have further explained to them how they could come alongside him in his hour of need, how they could be with him, to come along him and bear his burdens, to pray with him and for him. He could have told them about the victory that he was going to win for them by that suffering, by coming back to life. He could have told them about the resurrection that was going to happen not only for him, but also eventually to them. They could have left this moment, this statement of Jesus, with a more intimate understanding and relationship with the God of the universe. But instead they shrugged. I don't know what it means. They just moved on. They just kept going. How often do we have that same reaction when we're presented with the opportunity to develop real community with someone else, real community with a fellow follower of Christ, real understanding of what they mean and why they are saying what they're saying. We as the members of this church are joined together into the same body of Christ. There should be a level of intimacy and relationship that comes with that union, which exceeds every other relationship that we have in our lives, every other community we might be a part of, every other fellowship that we might enjoy. The people in this room should know you on such a level that they know what you struggle with. They know what you hope for. They know what you pray for. They know how you became a Christian, when you became a Christian, what your life was like before that, what it looks like now. And even all those things, that's just a glimpse of what true community actually looks like, what it actually means to be a fellow church member with another person. But how often do we choose our own comfort over pursuing that kind of community? When someone asks how it's going, how often do we just smile and nod? say it's good, even when it's not? Would it be weird if someone in this room walked up and asked you, hey, how'd your Bible reading go this week? What did you learn? What did you read? How did you enjoy it? Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. John is so focused on the tribe that he forgets that he's on the same team with this other guy. Jesus reminds him that the important piece isn't whether the guy is physically following the disciples around, but whether he's spiritually following Jesus. If he's casting out demons in Jesus' name, and the demon is actually cast out, Jesus is working through him. God is working through him. The disciples last week in the text that we covered were not able to cast out a demon, remember? They brought the boy to them. They couldn't do it. Jesus had to come and do it. So what now gives them the right to say that this other guy is doing it wrong? That he should be following them? This guy may be wrong on so many things. He may not be a very good follower of Jesus. He very possibly would benefit from following the disciples as they follow Jesus. They may be able to teach him a thing or two. But at the very least, if Jesus is working through him now, You can trust that even though he's not part of that smaller tribe, he is part of the larger team. They're on the same side. He won't be able to speak evil of Jesus soon afterward after doing these things. Whoever's not against them is for them. Christians, those of us who love God and follow Christ, should be able to cooperate with other Christians in our spiritual pursuit of living like Jesus as a response to his gospel. That reason is why this church is part of the Southern Baptist Convention. We partner with other Baptist churches to send missionaries, to train pastors, to plant churches, because we recognize we are on the same team. Depending on the task, there are opportunities, there are possibilities where we would partner with other churches, other denominations who aren't Southern Baptist, or maybe even they're part of no denomination at all, because we would recognize that, yeah, we're on the same team. During the pastoral prayer time, every week, I do the same thing. You may have noticed it, you may not. I take a major theme from the sermon, which I've already written in advance. I don't just write it from i up here. I take a major theme from the sermon, and I confess sin related to that theme. I repent of our sins related to that theme. And I give thanks to God for forgiving our, uh, of our sins related to that theme. But then what do I do? At the end of that, every week... We pray for a ministry partner. Most often, that's an SBC church in Conway. A Southern Baptist Convention church, which is in Conway, has a Conway address. And we do that because we are on the same team with those churches. We're actually on the same team with churches outside of that list that I have, more than only whoever we pray for. But stopping at the SBC boundary in Conway is just simpler and easier because we have to stop somewhere we could pray for more. I would have no problem praying with like-minded churches of different denominations because we're on the same team. It's just clearer and simpler to stop there. But we do that every week, even though some of those churches I wouldn't recommend you attend. If someone comes up and says, hey, where should I go to church in Conway? I, mm, I don't know. Maybe Pleasant Grove. I think Pleasant Grove Baptist Church is a great option for them to try out, for them to come and find and to join us and be a part of who we are and what we do here as we follow Christ, to join us in our purpose of glorifying God and enjoying for him forever by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. If someone asked me, where should I go? I think Pleasant Grove is a good option. But I don't have a problem with the other churches in Conway. I love the other churches in Conway. A rising tide sinks, uh, not sinks, raises all the ships. We want them to be good. We want them to be places where someone comes in and hears the gospel because not everybody's going to come in here. We have to pray for them because we're on the same team. We do that every week because it's a good reminder for all of us, myself included, that even though I may disagree with how this church is structured, I may disagree with what songs this other church sings, we're on the same team. Even if if it can sometimes feel like we're competing with one another. Well, this one's got all the money. This one's got such a good youth program. This one's got such a beautiful building. It doesn't matter. We're on the same team. So we pray for the churches on our team because we have the same mission and we serve the same God. Anyone who's not against us is for us. Jesus redrew the lines to include us. That's why we're able to do that. He redrew the lines of inclusion. He determines who's in and who's out, not me. And when he came and lived a perfect life before dying on the cross and rising from the grave, he redrew the lines to include you. Though you were a sinner far from God, he came and did his work to bring you onto the team. The only reason you're on the team right now, the only reason that I'm on the team right now, is because Jesus decided to save sinners. And he picked us for his team. And if he can include the unrighteous on his righteous team, then why do we so often want to redraw the lines to kick somebody else off the team? As his followers, we have to prioritize the team over our tribe, the church over this church. And I think when we do that, we'll find that God will bless this church, even as. Our focus isn't only on this church. The final misplaced priority a disciple can have from our text today is too great a focus on the present. We can choose now over later. The rest of our text. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. A disciple may choose current compromise. When he says in verse 42, one of these little ones, I think he's probably still holding on to that same child from earlier in the text. It's all part of the same story. It's all part of the same happening here. He still has that child there. This whole section until we get to chapter 10 is in response to the disciples arguing who is the greatest while Jesus is telling them about his greatness. But remember the child was a stand-in for the disciples. It says whoever receives one of these in my name. He warns anyone against causing a disciple to stumble. He's emphasizing the severity of doing something like that. And then he directly turns and challenges the disciples. Because they shouldn't only worry about someone else making them sin. They should worry about their own sin. But notice his emphasis here. He's hyperbolically telling them to cut off their own limbs in an attempt to root out the sin in their lives. He's telling them to cut off the limbs, get rid of the sin now, so you can enter life later. Verse 45, one of the examples of that in our text. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. He's saying, do whatever you have to do now so that later you're not thrown into hell, you're entering life. Focus on the later, even possibly at the expense of the now. You see, even people who are following Jesus can fall into a pattern of sin, a present pleasure, an earthly temptation, Immediate satisfaction, current riches, 15 minutes of fame in this 15 minutes. None of us are so far gone that we don't sometimes feel the allure of that kind of sin in our present reality. But rather than choosing now and whatever sins that might lead us into, we should choose to enter life. Part of following Jesus is taking the long view. We can't allow ourselves to focus on our lives, to think about our priorities through a lens of what feels good in the moment, what I feel like doing today, what I want my week to look like, what my five-year plan is to reach my goals. As a Christian, no, we have to think about what's going to bring us the most pleasure in 50,000 years. Not today, not this week, not these five years, not these 80 years. 50,000 years. That's how we have to think. That's what Jesus is telling his followers to do over and over throughout the book of Mark. And he's emphasizing it again right here. If you were somehow able to stop sinning by cutting off your hand, by cutting out your eye, what a small price to pay that would be. You can't. Do not go home and do that. It's not going to keep you from sinning. But if it did... What a small price to pay. Yeah, you would have one fewer hand, one fewer eye, one fewer foot, but you'd be entering life eternally where you're going to get a new hand, a new foot, a new eye. If that were actually how it would work, why wouldn't we do that? That's the point he's making there. He's not literally telling them to do these things. He's making the point that there's a greater value here than whatever you're holding on to right now, whatever it costs right now. In 50,000 years, it won't matter whether you had two eyes or two hands, but it will definitely matter whether you lived a life marked by sin or whether you lived a life marked by obedience to Christ and his commands as a righteous response to his work of saving you. You see, if you prefer the pleasure of sin to the joy of holiness, I don't think you're going to like heaven very much doesn't sound like a place that you want to go to. Even worse, it sounds like you might not be there if you would rather have the pleasure of sin than the joy of holiness. That's not how Christians think. He's telling them that there is a way that leads to death and there is a way that leads to life. And whatever discomfort you might endure, whatever comfort you might forsake on the way that leads to life, that is absolutely worth it. There is nothing more worth it than that. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He's telling his disciples, hey, choose life. You've got two options before you. You can kill your sin or be killed by your sin. Don't focus on the now so much that you die later. That makes no sense. 80 years of hedonistic sin is only 80 years. And at the end of it, what do you have to show for it? You're a hollowed out shell of a man who dies. But in contrast to that, 80 years living as a monk in the desert, rewriting the Bible by hand every day before entering life, one of those guys really sounds like a genius, right? There's nothing that you cannot endure for the greatness of that eternal forever. Forever. It's a pretty sweet deal. It's a pretty good opportunity that he gives his people because he bought that life for us. When Jesus saves us, he doesn't just save us from the sin. He saves us into life. We, as his disciples, have got to be able to forsake the easy for the hard. We have to be able to focus on others over self now. We have to choose people over power now. We have to choose playing for the team rather than fighting with other tribes now, knowing that later we will pass into a greater life that he's bought for us. Not on the basis of your ability to perfectly enact those things. Not on the basis of your ability to perfectly have the right priorities. That's not what's going to get you into the eternal life that he's gotten for you. He did it. His work on your behalf. His salvation of you. That's what gets you there. But one who experiences that is going to have new priorities, which allows you to be able to do these things. Which pushes you to be able to live this way. Which changes your desires such that you don't want those things anymore. That's how you live in light of the gospel. When we disciples have our priorities in order, we can follow the way of Jesus by, according to Hebrews twelve two, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Taking up your cross, living the Christian life, isn't easy, but it's what he did. So it's what we we must do. We're able to do it by keeping our priorities in line, by focusing on the joy that is set before us, that we might enter life and the presence of God through his death, through his resurrection, that by the glorious gospel that he has given to his people, we might be able to be transformed, renewed in our minds, made into his image. That though we were sinners, he saved us anyway. And in response to that kind of salvation, which we didn't earn and couldn't have earned, there's nothing that's not worth forsaking, giving up. For that life. That's the gospel. That's the truth. When your priorities are in order, you'll be able to take the long view. You'll be able to take the big picture view. You'll be able to focus on people. You'll be able to focus on the life that you can live together as Christians. Over anything else that you might be able to have. Over anything else that you might value. It's my hope that he'll do that for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for living the perfect life we couldn't live, dying the death we deserve to die, rising from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, and ascending to heaven to give us the promise and assurance of eternal life. Thank you for that gospel. Thank you for your Son who came to die for us, that we wouldn't have to. Thank you for giving us new priorities, a new focus. Thank you for calling us into a true community rather than whatever comfort we might find outside of it. Thank you for calling us into a life of service of people rather than whatever power we might have outside of it. Thank you for calling us into an eternal perspective which takes the long view, looks at what we're going to enjoy in 50,000 years, rather than what we might enjoy or want today. We love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.